have we been ignoring or belittling the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit? I think we have. Today I'll be preaching on the Holy Spirit not only because it is Pentecost, day 50 after Passover, but also as a pastor, as I think and pray about our church and the church as a whole, I am realizing that more and more we are struggling when it comes to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Maybe putting it aside, maybe forgetting it, maybe not talking about this teaching enough. And so as we gather in our homes or at church, as you gather with with friends and you talk about our church, when you talk about the condition of our church and the, the health of our church and, and the steps that our church is taking, as, as you think and talk about what's happening these days and where are we going from here, what kind of conversations are we having? What is your perspective? What is your input in these conversations? Maybe you're someone who is just focusing on work. You look at the state of the church right now and you say, well, you just have to work. We need everyone to work. We want everyone to roll up their sleeves and and get involved and serve. We have to come up with a list of areas of need. We need to delegate the ministries. We we need everyone to just get moving. We need to fill up the church schedule because a busy church might look like a fruitful or a healthy church. Maybe we need to plan revival meetings as if a revival can be scheduled or created. Let us stop planning and working and solving our issues with our understanding and our means and our motives. Or maybe you're saying, no, 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 we don't need to work. What we need is to stop working. What we need is to stop and wait and receive a fresh emotional experience from the Lord. Maybe you're saying, you know what, we don't need to try to solve everything now. We need to sit still, wait upon the Lord, and receive this new, fresh encounter. We, we don't need more preaching or teaching. We can put the Bible aside. We know that already. Let's just sit and wait. But are we focusing too much on feelings or impulses or impressions? Are we making conclusions about Scripture based on our experiences or making conclusions about our experiences based on Scripture? Or, or maybe you're someone who's saying, no, 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 we, we don't need to wait. We don't need a fresh encounter with the Lord. No, this is, this is all hopeless. Do you know such a person who says that? Oh, no, no, the Holy Spirit is not here. Uh, the, the real church was 50 years ago. The real church was in the time of the book of Acts. And this person is just frustrated and miserable and lifeless and forgets the riches and the power of the gospel. So, if you have one of these opinions or another perspective, could it be that we are forgetting or belittling the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives today. And so we're going to go back to Acts chapter 2, a passage familiar to us, a passage maybe confusing to many of us. And as we go through this passage, this is what I want you to see. That by faith, we are able to certainly and personally take part in the new age of the kingdom. A new day has arrived in the lives of believers by the outpouring of the Spirit, and we can be sure of this by the death and resurrection of Jesus, and we can experience this when we repent and are baptized. So something has happened. How can we be sure of it? And finally, how can we ourselves experience it? After the ascension of Jesus, the disciples gathered together regularly for prayer. In chapter 1, we read that they were always united in prayer. And on the day of Pentecost, they were again together in one place. And this is what happens in verse 2. 
Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were staying. They were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Here we see wind and fire and the filling of the Spirit and the speaking of many different languages at once. It says that they were filled with the Spirit, but we also see references to filling of the Spirit throughout the book. This was a one-time event. However, we see many different references to this elsewhere. We see another similar experience in Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 10, where another similar Pentecost was taking place. And we are mindful of other powerful and undeniably powerful revivals taking place throughout history. So, can it be that what happens in Acts 2 is the first of many? Should we pray and expect God to continue to bring a baptism of the Spirit upon us again and again? As I've been reading more and more about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and revivals, there was one pastor I came across who said the following. He says that every revival is a repetition of the Pentecost. It is the greatest need of the church at this present hour to have another Pentecost, to have another baptism. He says, in a revival, not only is Pentecost repeated, but also multiplied. He describes a revival when a large number of people are being baptized by the Spirit at the same time. So, there is baptism of the Spirit again and again throughout history. And when many believers are baptized all together, he says, that's a revival. This is an ongoing work of Pentecost. However, not everything we read in the book of Acts is meant to be imitated. However, there are things here that are more descriptive than prescriptive. Because we don't see a sermon in in the book of Acts. We don't see teaching by leaders. We don't see a prayer in the epistles that command us or encourage us to be baptized by the Spirit. Like Calvary, this is a one-time experience, a one-time event. When it comes to baptism, we see this repeated seven times in the New Testament. Four of them by John the Baptist, who was prophesying. Once by Jesus in Acts chapter 1 before the ascension. So that's five. Six is what happens here in Acts 2. And the seventh occurrence of baptism is found in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, where he is speaking more about unity in the church. So seven references to baptism, but there's no mention of this ongoing event or this command or this prayer. There's no indication that there's something different happening here apart from conversion. There's no emphasis here that a person gets saved and then later on they get baptized by the Spirit. That happened to the 120 believers, but their case was very unique. And at the end, when the 3,000 were saved, they were saved, they repented, and they were filled with the Spirit all at once. And our experience is like theirs. And so, if this is not one of many experiences, but one, so what happened on that day? What happened in Acts 2? What happened on the day of Pentecost? The dawning of a new age dwelling upon believers, movement towards global missions, and empowering for evangelism. Four things. First, the dawning of a new age. Apart from the word filling that we see in verse 4, in this context we also see baptism. We also see power in verse 8 of chapter 1. We see 
pouring out, which is a fulfillment of Isaiah, who several times spoke of a pouring out of the Spirit as water poured out on dry land. We also see promise, and we also see gift. Or to put it differently, on that day, the believers received the gift that was promised from before, and they were baptized by the Spirit who was poured out. From long ago, this was promised. We see this promise early on from Numbers chapter 11. Moses was doing ministry, and he felt overwhelmed. There was a lot of work to do, and he prayed that God provides helpers. And at that moment, 70 elders were filled with the Spirit. An objection was raised, and to that Moses said, Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his Spirit upon them. Joel takes that and gives another further prophecy in Joel chapter 2. Then John the Baptist comes and says, this is going to happen. I'm baptizing with water. But John says, someone is coming and he will baptize you with the Spirit. Wait upon him. And right before Jesus went to heaven, he said, wait. Wait, because what I have promised is coming. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So what is happening in this is a one-time event promised from long ago, ushering us into a new era. The day of Pentecost was like the sunrise of a brand new day. The rays of the sun lights up the sky across the horizon, brightening the day more and more and more. The Spirit was poured out. A new day has begun. We are in that new day now. Or imagine that you receive an inheritance from a wealthy relative. And within a day, you are allowed and you are told to move to a bigger and better city. So within one day, you move to a different city. It's new, better, cleaner. It's fresh. It's beautiful. Wonderful landscape, cleaner air, better types of food. All of that is given to you in one moment and you move to a new life. What they had from Acts 1 to Acts 2 was that they were ushered into a brand new life under the power of the Holy Spirit. This was the start of the last days which God will bring his plan of salvation to completion. This was a time of transition from what was taking place in the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament to the ministry and the work of the Spirit in the New Testament. Because this was a time of transition, the filling of the Spirit was separate and powerful, but it is not the same for us, for we are not in that in-between time as they were. We are already in the new age. Second, an indwelling. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, but only on certain people at certain times for certain tasks. But what what was promised is that the Holy Spirit was going to come on all believers, not some. Not for a visit, but for a full indwelling, real and ongoing presence of the Spirit. Jesus promised in John 14, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. A person who believes in Jesus for salvation receives the gift and the power and the filling and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And as believers, we have this union with God, but because we all have this relationship with God, we are also in union with one another. We are baptized in the same Spirit. Paul says when he teaches on church unity, 
For in one spirit we are all baptized, into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. We're one church. We're one body. We are in one baptism of the Spirit. While the disciples were genuine believers, they were not united as a church until Pentecost, where they were welded together. They became one church family on that day. Having said that, the baptism of the Spirit cannot be assumed or ignored. The work of the Spirit is not ordinary nor done. There is an ongoing walking in the Spirit that we are called to. There is a regularly filling of the Spirit that we are commanded for. There is a real and deep assurance from the Spirit that we are desperately longing for. There is a joy and peace from the Spirit regarding which many of us pray for. Jesus had promised that once he is glorified, the Spirit would be given. And then the baptism of the Spirit would cause rivers of life to flow out of believers. Who? Those who thirst for Christ. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And out of him, rivers of life will flow out by the Holy Spirit, he says. And so if we want this, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us seek him wholeheartedly and thirst for him always. Let us not take this lightly. Let us not assume it. Let us not fall into the sin of quenching the Spirit. Let us not belittle or ignore the Spirit's presence. Let us seek Christ. Let us thirst for him, and this will be ours as well. Third, a movement towards global missions. When you take a large rock and you throw it into the middle of a pond, Immediately, these waves start, right? And they flow outwards. Little by little, the waves continue and they become smaller. And by the end of the pond or the other side of the lake, you see, you, you see the ripples and you feel the ripples. What, what happened was that the Spirit came at that moment and the waves and the ripples have been felt throughout time all around the world. Where am I getting missions from? A reference to languages in verse 4 and the prophecy of Joel in verse 14. First, let's go to the languages. When the believers were baptized by the Spirit, they started speaking in various languages. Now, devout men were present from all nations under heaven. Why? Because it was Pentecost. It was one of the three Jewish festivals that they would celebrate. They would come together for that festivity. They were all their people from all over. One commentator said, It is appropriate that the event that was going to propel the gospel to the ends of the earth took place at a time when people from the ends of the earth were in Jerusalem. They were all there. The gospel was going to go out, but it started here. It was already a global city in a sense. But when you think about languages being spoken, many languages at once, does this not remind you of Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel? But the exact opposite. In that day, the people gathered to build a tower and a city reaching the heavens to make a name for themselves. In Acts 2, it is all about God. They were telling of the mighty works of God, verse 12 says, for the sake of his name. In Genesis 11, God intervened and judged them and gave them languages to confuse them. But in Acts 2, God intervened and once more blessed them. And the believers were able to speak in all languages, not for confusion, but for clarity, so that all those present would understand While God was dispersing the people in Genesis 11, in in Acts 2, he is bringing them together. He is breaking down the barriers. He is creating a multi-ethnic unity. 
So what was happening here is not a group of drunk people early in the morning. What was happening here, you can say, is a reversal. And more than that, a redemption of the events of Genesis 11. And we are no longer dealing with the Jewish people only. The focal point is not Jerusalem only, but all throughout Scripture. We see promises made about a community of all believers from all over the earth, which in fact we see fulfilled in Revelation 7, where an innumerable gathering of various nations, tribes, peoples, and languages worship God. It's fulfilled in Revelation 7, and we see it also in Acts 2. And from Acts 2 is going to spread, as Jesus said, to all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The global missions was launched on that day. God was sending his message of Christ to the ends of the earth. And we also see this from the prophecy of Joel, given over 500 years before this took place. This is what he says in verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, And your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Most of the book of Joel is about judgment. 70% of the book is about immediate judgment or referring to the future day of the Lord. And Joel warns the people and says, repent, awake, lament. Return to the Lord in weeping, he says. Rend your hearts and not your garments. And he says, if you do, you will be restored. God will promise to rescue you from your enemies. God will restore the lost years. And there will be a mighty outpouring of the Spirit. Not a light drizzle, but a torrential rain. A full outpouring of the Spirit on a dry land. And there will be sons and daughters speaking, young and the old, people of all classes and groups, both Jews and Gentiles. In Acts, Luke is writing for the Gentiles. He wants them to know that this outpouring is not just for the Jewish people in Jerusalem, but it's for the ends of the earth. Luke wants the Gentiles to know that you are not second-class citizens. We are all family in the kingdom of God. This is for everyone. Acts 2.39, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. From this we see the essential nature of missions, but also God's sovereign grace that brings hope to mission work. Uh, Henry Martin was a missionary from England who moved to India in 1806 to work alongside William Carey. Henry Martin said the following, The spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. And the nearer we get to him, the more intensely missionary we must become. The spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. If we are going to get closer with the spirit, he is going to send us out in the name of Jesus for the cause of Christ. Beloved, do we need to repent from our selfish way of life where we worship comfort and ease? Do we need to repent of our pride, and let me say it, of our racism? Even against Armenians, right? What country are you from? Oh, you're Barskai? You're from Armenia? We look at each other differently. And we put each other down and we make fun of each other because we love each other. But more than that, what about reaching outwards towards the Turks? 
Yes, a hundred years have passed, but will we fast and pray for salvation to come upon them? Will we reach out and encourage maybe those pastors that visited a few years ago, or maybe other mission groups that we are aware of that is involved in the country of Turkey? Will we pray that there will be a mighty outpouring of the Spirit upon them? But maybe, maybe we don't need to move because the nations have come to us. Do you know that in L.A. County, there are more than 100 languages being spoken? The ends of the earth are within a 30-minute drive. What, oh what, I wonder, is God calling you to do for the sake of the gospel and reaching the nations? And will you listen or quickly busy yourself and thus quench the Spirit? Fourth, the empowerment for evangelism. The filling is for the cause of proclaiming Christ. There are nine references to filling of the Spirit in the book of Acts, and nine of them are connected with evangelism. At the end of Luke and at the beginning of Acts, we see the resurrected Jesus telling the disciples that the Spirit is coming, you will receive power for the purpose of being my witnesses. The baptism of the Spirit launched a new era in the kingdom, brought unity to the body of believers, and empowered them with courage to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. One example is Peter. In Matthew 16, Jesus spoke of his coming death, and Peter rebuked him, Far be it from you, Lord! But in Acts 2, Peter was quite certain why Jesus had to die. He said this was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In Matthew 26, Jesus told them that they would all leave. But Peter said, no, I will never leave. Even if they will, I will stay until my death. I'm not going to deny you. But soon he denied Jesus three times. Two of which was when his young servant girl was questioning him. But here in Acts 2, that weak and fearful Peter has been transformed by the Spirit. And he stood up with the eleven, lifted his voice, addressed the people, rebuked them of their sin, preached from Joel's prophecy, spoke of the death and resurrection of Jesus, called the people to repentance and baptism, and 3,000 were saved on that day. Is that power? One of the closest disciples of Jesus hurt him deeply. But after the resurrection, in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Jesus appeared to Peter personally. I'm not done with you. He restored him and sent him out on mission. You are not disqualified because of your past sin or your broken experiences or your family or your place of origin or anything else. If God can use Peter, he can fill, use, and send you out as well. This is what happened with the baptism of the Spirit. We see a new age in the kingdom and an indwelling upon believers and a movement towards global missions and an empowerment for evangelism. But here's another question for you. How can we be sure of this? This sounds good, but can we accept this with certainty? And Peter addresses that from verses 22 to 36 when he speaks about Christ. He speaks about the life of Christ in 22, the death in 23, Then from 24 to 32, he spends time on the resurrection, and then he speaks a few verses about the exaltation. God the Father has sent the Son and empowered the Son with the Spirit for the works of ministry. And Jesus died, but it was not a surprise nor a defeat. Now, to the Jews, this was unacceptable. To the Jews, this was a stumbling block. How does the Messiah get defeated and die on the cross? And to emphasize God's victory in this, Peter emphasizes that this was God's doing from the very beginning. 
Jerry Bridges said, Surely men committed heinous sin in crucifying Christ, and yet their actions were both ordained and orchestrated by the very hand of God. He died, but death could not hold him down any more than a pregnant woman can keep the baby in for very long. The baby will be born, and Jesus will rise from the dead. Death could not hold him down. He has risen from the dead. And Peter gives nine verses, listen to this, about 45% of the sermon is just about the resurrection. From the sermon, he emphasizes over and over that Jesus is alive. Peter does not prove it. They knew it. He simply proclaimed it. That Jesus really died. The tomb was really empty. The witnesses were there. And lives were being changed. And he makes reference to Psalm 16. Where David says, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. As Peter says, David is not talking about himself, because he died and was buried. This was a prophecy pointing ahead to Jesus, whom the Father was not going to abandon. The devil had nothing on Jesus, no claim on Jesus, John 14. Instead, by his death and resurrection, Jesus destroyed him and all his works, 1 John 3. That this victorious king is now sitting at the Father's right hand until the restoration of all things, until all his enemies are brought under his footstool, it says in verse 35. And according to chapter uh, Psalm 16, Jesus is now the most joyful being in the universe. He rejoices, he won, he is really alive. And if he is really alive and he's really exalted to the Father, then he really is sending the Holy Spirit to us. You're with me? First the exaltation, then the baptism. And the baptism did take place, and that gives us assurance that the exalted state of Jesus is really there. He is really there. He rose, he is exalted, and he sent the Holy Spirit. And so when we have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we're reminded that this really took place, that we really have a risen, exalted Christ. And so we do life and ministry and missions with that certainty. We serve a risen Savior who is alive, who has crushed the head of the evil one, who is sending us on mission to proclaim the gospel to all people. And this mission, by the way, is unstoppable. With just the first message, 3,000 are saved. And God is calling us to go. Remember that from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace upon grace is given to the church, being sent out to proclaim the gospel. And let us hold on to that promise today. Beloved, we have this assurance that today really is a new age in the kingdom. The sunrise did take place on Pentecost, and we are living in the light of the resurrected, exalted Lord today. But are you in this? Are you included in this? Do you have that assurance yourself? Do you sense God speaking to you this morning? Is he breaking your heart over all this? When the people heard this sermon, it says they were cut to the heart. And they said, what shall we do? So if you are not a believer, the falling is for you. Because what Peter told them and what I'm calling you to do is to repent. Stop assuming that this doesn't apply to you. Stop ignoring the holiness of God and the depth of your sin. 
Stop trusting in your own goodness and strength to save you. Instead, turn. Turn from the life you have been living. You have been living away from and against God, but no more. As Joel said, rend your heart and not your garment. Come with a broken heart. Come with godly sorrow. Confess your sins to the Lord. Trust in Him fully. And as you trust in Him, you will become one with Him. And so His death becomes your death, and His resurrection is now yours. And you will be baptized. And that baptism is just a picture of what is happening in you spiritually, that you have also died with Christ, and you have risen to a new life. Believe in Him. Be baptized and show your allegiance to those around you, your allegiance to the Lord. And if you do, you will have life. The people murdered God's Son. Instead, He sent them His Spirit. They crucify the second person of the Trinity. He has offered them the third. And that's all grace. We're sinners who deserve unending judgment. And by faith we are adopted by the Father, united with the Son, filled with the Spirit. He says, repent and be baptized and you'll be forgiven. And instead, given the Spirit. Jeremiah says, you'll be, your sins will be remembered no more. And God will write his law in your hearts. You'll be given a new life with a new heart and a new power to live for God. And if you're a believer already today, the following is for you. Do not ignore Stop belittling the presence of the power of the Spirit. Do not quench the leading of the Spirit. Instead, if He is leading you to go, obey Him. If He is leading you to serve, go. If to encourage, don't wait. If to restore and reconcile, go today. If to worship, study the Word, share the Gospel, disciple a new believer, today, beloved, today. If He convicts you through the Word, Be quick to confess and repent of your sins. What damage has happened in our lives due to a lack of confession of sin? What damage does that do to family, marriage, church, and beyond? We ignore and make excuses, but the Bible says without confession there is no healing. Let us look to the Lord once more. Behold Him in all His holiness. Let us come in awe of His glory And at the depth of his grace, let us look forward with eagerness, knowing that the same God of Acts 2, the same God of so many revivals throughout church history, is the same God that we worship and follow here today. And so as we consider our church these days, before you give your opinion, before you give your ideas, let us first be mindful that the Spirit is here. He is working since he was poured out on that day. Let us be aware that we are living in the last days in the new age of the kingdom, filled with the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit to be sent to the nations with the message of the gospel, with the incredible hope for our Savior who died, has risen from the dead, reigns with all authority. He has crushed the evil one, will one day be worshipped by people from all nations. He will be worshipped by people from all nations. Let's bow our hearts before the Lord and take a moment of silent prayer. If you need to confess before the Lord, do so now. And pray that as a church we would see and believe all this in a real and fresh way.